I'm not going to read these passages now, but we're going to be in two passages in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 19. Uh, but we'll come to those in due course. Uh, we're almost at the end of a series, Experiencing the Spirit. And today we're looking at grieving and quenching the Spirit. And next week, blaspheming the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy and mighty presence. Our prayer is that your word would be our rule, that your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher, and that your honour and your glory alone might be our supreme concern for Jesus' sake. Amen. He had a face like that of an angel. After all, he was a man full of God's Holy Spirit. But those who debated with him disliked him intensely because they could not stand up to his God-given wisdom. So they secretly got some unsavory characters uh, together to bring false charges against him. So he was seized and dragged before uh, the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. He was, however, allowed to defend himself against these false charges. The speech he gave that day in his defense hearing was basically a history lesson. It reached a climax with these rather bold and challenging words from Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now... You have betrayed and murdered him. The righteous one that Stephen spoke of was the Lord Jesus Christ. And with these words, Stephen as good as signed his own death warrant. Stephen would become the first century's very first Christian martyr. Instead of taking the politically correct Route, Stephen chose not to mince his words that day. The angry mob that resulted, while covering their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him as he spoke, dragged him outside, and then stoned him to death. Stephen's main charge against the nation of Israel, the people of God, both past and present, was that they always, you see it there? They always resist the Holy Spirit. Verse 51. He likens them to an ox or a horse that won't take a harness around the neck. As you try to put it on, the animal stiffens and stretches its neck in order to resist your attempts. If such an animal could speak, it would say, I will not submit. I will not be controlled or directed by you. Leave me alone. I want to be free to do what I want to do. As God tried to teach and guide his wayward people Israel, like a, a terrible toddler or a tantrumy teenager, they stiffened their necks and buck against him in their attempts to resist his will for their lives. Uh, the word uncircumcised in chapter 7 verse 51 of Acts suggests a similar sort of idea. The uncircumcised in the Bible are those who naturally refuse to listen to God's word. 
They find it offensive, perhaps, and so refuse to hear what God says with their ears. If you could picture them, they would be deliberately standing with a finger in each ear in order to stop themselves hearing what God has to say so they are then not obliged to obey. No wonder these people stoned Stephen to death that day for saying these things. I wonder how you respond when you are told in no uncertain terms that you are wrong, that you need to change. If you're anything like me, your natural and most instinctive reaction will be to resist, to stiffen your neck, or to engage your selective hearing. To chew over the bits you can swallow while spitting out those bits you find too chewy or hard to digest, or simply that don't taste nice. But notice that Stephen describes this as resisting the Holy Spirit. The three expressions in Acts 7 verse 51, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in ears and heart, and resisting the Spirit, are really three ways of saying exactly the same thing. To resist the Holy Spirit, then, is to refuse to see or savor what he wants to show you. To resist the Holy Spirit is simply to refuse to see or to savor what he wants to show you. Now, this is number six of a seven-part series on the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. If you've missed any of the series, can I encourage you to find the time to listen to what you've missed online? Apparently, one member of our congregation is listening uh, to me while on the beach in Barbados. Uh, Today, we're going to look at a couple of passages of the Bible, encapsulates one of the most solemn themes in the Bible. And it covers this whole area of sins committed against the Holy Spirit. Both Christians and those of us who would not claim to be Christians can be guilty of committing sins against the Holy Spirit, of resisting the person of the Holy Spirit, albeit in different ways. So if you would not yet call yourself a Christian here today, or you're not sure where you stand with regard uh, to the Bible, to to, to God, to Jesus, to Christianity, I need to tell you that the Bible does warn that there is one sin against the person of the Holy Spirit that you could become guilty of. But I'm not going to talk about that this week. But if you come back next week, I'll be dealing with that then. Today I'm more concerned with the fact that the New Testament, according to the New Testament, every Christian can commit at least two categories of sins against God the Holy Spirit. And this is obviously a serious issue, so we need to be clear on what the Bible has to say. So first, be careful not to be grieving the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing I want us to notice, or the first thing to take note of. Be careful... Not to be grieving the Holy Spirit. Be careful that you're not someone blissfully going through your Christian life, grieving at every turn, God the Holy Spirit. Because the first way you can resist the Spirit of Jesus Christ or fail to see or savor what he wants to show you is by grieving him. According to Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 30. You can turn to that passage if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, Paul the writer, 
writes this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4 verse 30. Now, our statement of faith can be found on our church website. It's worth making time to read it and to reflect upon it. Why not make that your summer project? It says this about the Holy Spirit. We believe that the person of the Holy Spirit is fully God, sent by the Father to glorify Christ and to apply his work of salvation. He convicts sinners, imparts spiritual life, and gives a true understanding of the scriptures. He indwells all true believers, brings assurance of salvation, and produces increasing likeness to Christ. He gives gifts to build up the church and empowers its members for worship, service, and mission. That is pretty much what I've been trying to say over the last five weeks. An older translation of Ephesians 4 verse 30 reads like this. And put not to pain the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of our God. And put not to pain the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of our God. You see, because the Holy Spirit is a person, it is possible to cause him pain, to cause him distress, or to make him heavy with sorrow or sadness. According to one person's uh, translation of this verse, the late Eugene Peterson, it is possible to break the Spirit's heart. I hope you find that a very striking and sobering thought. It's possible to break the Holy Spirit's heart. Only people can be grieved or have their hearts broken and not objects or things. And so what Stephen said to uh, these Jews in Acts chapter 7 is a great warning to us today. See, we can also resist the Holy Spirit just like God's people Back then, we can resist him by grieving him. So we too can break the Spirit's heart, causing him great sadness, sorrow, and pain. If you or I are a Christian man or woman, boy or girl here today, you have a conflict raging within you. God the Holy Spirit dwells within your inner being, and yet your heart or, or inner being is also haunted by Adam's sinful flesh. Remember from a few weeks back? So much so that you naturally find yourself resisting God the Holy Spirit within you. And this is not you or me on a bad day, but rather on any given day. According to Romans 7 and Galatians 5, this is normal Christian experience. We find our flesh resisting the work of God the Holy Spirit within us. Of course, the question is, how exactly do we grieve or hurt the Holy Spirit? Well, the context in which Ephesians 4 verse 30 comes is very instructive, shocking even. Interestingly, it does not come in the context of failing to exercise the gift of prophecy, tongues, or the interpretation of tongues. Nor is it mentioned in the context of not having the right style of praise and worship in a public gathering like this one. No, it comes rather right in the middle of a pretty mundane 
passage where Paul is writing about what it means or will look like to live a normal, everyday Christian life. Follow as I read from Ephesians 4 verse 28. Ephesians 4 verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see that? And right bang in the middle of that passage is our verse. To cause the Holy Spirit pain or grief, you don't have to insult him, attack him, or physically abuse him, as it were. You simply have to be un-Jesus-like in the way you behave and speak to other people. And most especially, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was writing to Christians in Ephesus. You see, Ephesians is a, a little letter with a big outlook. Having spent over three chapters explaining the really big thing that God is doing in the world, which is summed up in chapter 1, verse 10, that is, gathering all things in heaven and earth under the leisure of Jesus. Paul, the writer, spends the rest of the letter explaining what that will mean for these Christians living 2,000 years ago in what is modern-day Turkey. According to chapter 5, verse 8, it will mean living as children of light. You've been taken from darkness to light. Now live as if you belong to the light. But what will that mean in practice? Well, be lazy, dishonest, and unproductive at your place of work and become an unnecessary burden on other Christians around you, and you'll be causing God the Holy Spirit pain. Verse 28. Put others down with your sarcasm, your ungracious and judgmental words and attitudes, your unedifying talk, or your constant negativity, cynicism, and criticism. And whether it is your intention or not, you will be breaking the Holy Spirit's heart, whether you realize it or not. Verse 29. Allow bitterness, anger and malice to simmer in your heart. Gossip about other people and slander them in their absence. And the spirit of Jesus Christ in you will be made to feel great sorrow, even if you don't. Verse 31. Be mean and unsympathetic and demonstrate an unwillingness to forgive those around you, despite the fact that God in Christ has already forgiven you in and through the death of his son and your savior, Jesus Christ. And the spirit of Christ in you will be made to turn away in great sorrow and sadness because of you. Verse 32. At best, such actions mean you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. At worst, it might mean you don't really understand the gospel in the first place. So the context in which verse 30 comes suggests grieving the spirit, hurting him or causing him pain, happens when you and I conduct ourselves badly. 
in our personal relationships with others, especially other Christians. And this is not surprising because having redeemed us, the Spirit unites us or baptizes us with other Christians into the body of Jesus Christ. And for that great day of redemption, when together we will see Jesus face to face. And you know what? He does this for us regardless of our ethnicity, class, moral background or educational achievements. And with all our little quirks and idiosyncrasies. So it makes him sad, it hurts him, it grieves him when we hurt one another by failing to accept one another. You see that? And of course, grieving the Holy Spirit in this way damages our witness to the outside world. How did Jesus put it? By this, everyone will know that you are my my disciples. If, know the rest, if you love one another. Show me a Christian who is grieving the Holy Spirit, and I will show you a Christian who is not loving a brother or sister in Christ. Elsewhere, the New Testament says, you cannot claim to love a God that you can't see if you're not loving your brothers and sisters who you can see. You're lying to yourself and to those around you. And you can hide your lack of love for other Christians, perhaps, but you cannot hide it from or lie to the Spirit of God who lives within you. So can I exhort you, no matter what your temperament or personality, whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're a glass half empty or half full sort of person, and I think we can hide behind these things, can't we? If you have a problem with someone at Gracious Broccoli, or anywhere for that matter, go and talk with that person alone, in keeping with what Jesus said in Matthew 18. I wonder how many problems would be solved if Christians in faith simply put into practice what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Uh, From personal experience, this can be really helpful. For example, it gave me, when it happened to me, the opportunity to apologize, to clear up any misunderstanding, and to just get things out in the open with that person. It may not have been the most comfortable conversation I've had in my life, but far from being grieved by it, I think the Holy Spirit rejoiced that it happened. Don't confuse always avoiding confrontation with being holy or being spiritual. They are not always the same thing. So tell me, have you or are you grieving God the Holy Spirit as you sit here this afternoon? Do you need to do business with him and or with someone else, even in this congregation, as you sit here this afternoon? God and only you know. Second, be careful not to be quenching the Holy Spirit. Be careful not to be quenching the Holy Spirit. The second way you can resist the person of the Holy Spirit or fail to see or savour what he wants to show you is by quenching him. By quenching the Holy Spirit. We're probably meant to see a certain amount of overlap between quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying they're they're completely different things necessarily. And yet the context in which both our verses come are quite different. So at the end of his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. 
do not quench the spirit. The older NIV put the verse this way. Do not put out the spirit's fire. Literally, the word, the verse reads, the spirit do not quench. The spirit do not quench. The word quench means to put out, to extinguish, much like putting out a, a fire with a damp cloth. You know, you, you get a saucepan that's on fire and you get a damp cloth and you, you put it over that saucepan to, to dampen the, the flames. But it can also refer to putting out or extinguishing a lamp or a light. Hence the translation in the older NIV. You see, God the Holy Spirit is both a fire that burns in our hearts if we know and love Jesus. And he's also a light that shines out from those of those whom he has taken possession of. You see that? The Spirit is both a fire that burns in the hearts of those who love Jesus. And he's also a light that shines out of those whom he's taken possession of. And incredibly, Paul seems to suggest in verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, that it is possible to put out the Spirit's fire, to extinguish the Spirit's light. It is possible to quench the Spirit of God Almighty. Again, don't you find that a striking and sobering thought? The question is, what does it mean in the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Well, again, this exhortation comes right in the middle of a number of other similar exhortations. Again, let me read them to you. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you haven't already gone there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench or put out the Spirit's fire. Verse 20, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. In verses 16, 17, and 18, it is God's will in Christ Jesus, and therefore the Spirit's will, that you and I, if we claim to be Christians, are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. You see that? The Thessalonians had turned from their pagan idolatry to serve the true and living God at the end of chapter 1 and to wait for his resurrected son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven. Jesus died for their sins on the cross and promised to return, having set them apart as his own special people. So their lives were to be marked by faith, love, and hope in chapter 1. Which means they should be joyful, praying, thankful people. Think for a moment what the world would see if they failed to live up to what they had become or what they were. If, if they failed to savour what the Spirit was showing them, I think Paul would say, according to verse 16, 17, and 18, the world would see a joyless, self-reliant, self-confident and ungrateful group of people. The spirit fire of love will not be seen burning in that sort of community, will it? Rather, his light will have been extinguished. It will have been put out. He will have been quenched. And let's be honest. Uh, we've become here in the UK a nation of politically correct complainers. Even as Christians, we can be tempted to become miserable, 
faithless, ungrateful whiners, can't we? We can all slip into it. Especially when we stop focusing on the gospel and start focusing in on ourselves. It has been said that Christian love is the Holy Spirit's great contradiction of our natural fallen human condition. I don't know about you, but being unloving comes pretty naturally to me a lot of the time. The opposite of love is not hate so much as indifference, which is just another word for self-love. And of course, this kills relationships because it becomes about, well, why is my life so hard? What's in it for me? Why am I not being appreciated? Rather than, what can I give? Who can I serve? How can I help? So at the heart of our living and responding to one another should be the person of the Holy Spirit. And we fail to see or savour what he means to show us at our peril. One writer and preacher writes of these verses, verses 16, 17 and 18, let the Holy Spirit move you to respond in praise, prayer, and thanksgiving. Do not quench him. That's John Stott, the late John Stott. But also, if you look at verses 19 to 21, I think putting out the Spirit's fire or quenching him not only refers back to how you and I respond to the word of God in the gospel in verses 16, 17, and 18, it's also linked to how we listen to the word of God in verses 20 and 21. Not quenching or putting out the Spirit's fire in verse 19 is also directly linked to not treating prophecies with contempt. Verse 20. Now, to understand what Paul means by prophecies here, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the Thessalonians in the first century. These Greek Christians, because Thessalonica was in Greece, had the Old Testament scriptures but the New Testament was not available to them. It was in the process of being written. In fact, 1 Thessalonians is thought to be one of the earliest New Testament letters written around 20 years after the death of Jesus, AD 50-ish. As a result, God raised up people to prophesy in the public gatherings, Christian gatherings. That is, to bring the word of God to the gathered people of God. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 14, such prophesying should be done in an orderly fashion and for the instruction, for the strengthening, and for the encouragement and comfort of all those present. It would involve two or three people, each taking turns to prophesy during a public gathering. So one Sunday, you were at Grace Church, Thessalonica, and the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, in turn, stand up to bring you a word from God. To prophesy, in other words. Now, for whatever reason, it would seem that some in the church of Thessalonica were tempted to, or in fact were treating what was being said in these public gatherings with contempt. It's possible that some, with the gift of prophecy, were using it to justify false teaching surrounding the second coming of Jesus. If you read one Thessalonians, you'll see there's quite an emphasis on the second coming. Or we're defending those who had adopted an idle, lazy pattern of life in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. Paul's response is to say, don't quench the spirit. 
Don't treat the word of God with contempt. Verses 19 and 20. Rather, test or weigh what is being said. Holding on to the good while staying clear of that which is evil. Verse 21 and 22. For the Thessalonians, this meant testing what was being said against the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles, like Paul. Hence, the letter of 1 Thessalonians. For you and me, who no longer have apostles like Paul alive today to consult, we instead have the completed canon of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. We must test everything against that. Test everything, whether that which is spoken from this lectern, at prayer gatherings, within fellowship groups, test even the thoughts that pop into your head as you pray and read your Bible in private. If you must watch Christian TV or listen to Christian radio, test all that you both see and hear against the canon or the standard, that's what the word canon means, standard, set by the scriptures, the word of God. Don't go around with your eyes wide open and your mouth gaping or ready to automatically receive everything that comes your way. Rather, use your private judgment to discern what is good compared with that which is evil. And we live in an age where there is more information than ever before. And if we lack discernment, we're going to be in big trouble. If, so if you lack discernment, ask God to help you to be more discerning. So God, the Holy Spirit, sovereignly and freely stands at the heart of our responding to God's word and also to our listening to God's word. Again, the words of the preacher and writer I mentioned earlier on. Paul is saying here in verse 20 to 22, let the Holy Spirit speak to you through his word. Do not quench him. John Stott. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you through his word. Do not quench him. Two things to take away. In your relationship with one another, love on and care for each other. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit move you to respond in praise, prayer and thanksgiving. Let him speak to you through his word. In other words, don't quench the Holy Spirit. So there you have it. Two ways in which as Christians, you and I can resist the Holy Spirit of Christ and of God. By grieving him and by quenching him. It's not that he abandons us if we're Christians. Nor is it that we expel him by our ungodliness. Rather, we cause him sorrow, pain, sadness. And therefore his power is diminished in us and among us. Because whether we realise it or not, we're resisting him. Let's bow our heads, have a moment's reflection.